several years ago, I um, showed this book to my eighth grade Bible class. We, as we often do, uh, at some point throughout the course of a academic year, we'll talk about Christian worldviews, and we'll talk about how God is in everything. And so I brought this book in, it's more advanced for an eighth grader, but I brought this book in to just show them the title. And the title of the book is called Of Games and God, subtitled A Christian Exploration of Video Games. Now, video games is something I have to talk a fair bit about with eighth graders, as you can well imagine. But the only reason why I'm holding this book up, I'm not, I am commending it to you, but it's off sub, this subject is off subject this morning. I'm simply holding this book up to you to tell you that one of the eighth graders, when I held that book up and said, of games and God, scoffed. And before I was able to finish, because most, most eighth graders are want to do, interrupted me and said, right out loud, what in the world does God have to do with video games? And I was so grateful for that expression. You, you learn to be patient with eighth graders because, man, they just let it fly. And they say things that can be aggravating. They say things that can be annoying. All the parents in the room are going, uh-huh. But he was so honest, and it came from his gut. And it gave such an, an amazing, teachable moment. What in the world does God have to do with video games? You can imagine where I went in the Bible to help this class think through some things. Mm -hmm. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because what I've been saying, particularly with regard to conforming to the pattern of this age, is that God applies to everything. You heard me quote uh, Abraham Kuyper last week, where God says of everything, there's not one square inch of your life over which God does not say mine. So whether you're a gamer or whether you're a, 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 a binge watcher of Netflix, whatever it might be, God has something to do with everything in your life. You could take that book and you could take out the word games and you could literally insert anything in your life, literally, no exceptions, none literally insert anything else in that blank, and that book could be written of work and God, of parenting and God, of sex and God, of food and God, of shopping and God, of TV watching and God. Nothing would not go in that blank. And this is part of what I'm doing by camping on Romans 12, 1 and 2, for as long as I have been and will until, by God's grace, I'm satisfied with having gotten the bigger idea around, if, uh, around your heads. Uh, if, if I were to ask you to use nothing but biblical language to describe yourself, what language would you use? Now, you've already heard me give you an example in the prayer. If you listen to my pastoral prayers carefully, I tip my hand. And there are things that in those prayers that usually come out in the sermons. And one of the things that I, I did in that prayer was enabled you, I pray, to hear that biblically you're described in Christ as a saint, as a brother and sister, as beloved. And we're not used to, to hearing those kinds of 
those kinds of words. We tend to be more self-effacing and know ourselves as dirty, rotten scoundrels and worms and sinners and all those kinds of things. And there is, to a certain extent, truth in those things. We are both saint and sinner simultaneously. But if you were to take pen and apply to paper and write down just words, terms that describe those whose lives are in Christ, what would be some of the words that you would come up with? Well, here's some that I came up with that I want you to consider because it's especially relevant to what we're talking about here this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, Peter describes Christians as sojourners and exiles. Drawing deeply from Old Testament time, sojourners, and, and it, particularly in the law, God gives instructions to his people that they are to do certain things so that the sojourners in the land might eke out a living. So if you were a vineyarder, is that such a word? If you owned a vineyard, if you were a farmer, you were not, you were not to harvest every square inch of your land. You were to leave stuff on the fringes. Why? Because the sojourner made his or her way into your land, and something there would give them sustenance. Peter takes up that language and describes Christians as sojourners and exiles, meaning this is not home. He wants to be sure that you understand that, but it's not. There's a, there's a symphony of voices here, not just Peter, but Paul as well. Philippians 3.20, very well-known passages. We, we are citizens of heaven. You heard me pray that as well. We have this, as Christians, we have this dual citizenship. I don't, I don't mean to come off sounding like citizenship in this country or any country is something inherently bad. It's not, but it's not ultimate. It's not primary. If you are in Christ and you take your faith seriously, you are first and foremost, bar none, citizens of heaven, which means heaven's rule, heaven's guidance, heaven's directive is what informs you more than citizenship even of this country. Things like that now get me in trouble. And I mean not to do that. I just simply point to our identity in Christ because there are so many people around me so worked up politically that it makes me wonder whether or not politics matters more to people of Christ than theology does. People are more concerned about where I am politically than where I am theologically right now. That's unsettling if the truth is told, especially here on Staten Island. Say that we're sojourners and exiles. Not only does Paul say that we're citizens of heaven, but Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, tells us that we are seeking, you just heard me pray this, that we are seeking a, a better country. I want to read you a couple of these verses because he connects some of these dots. In Hebrews eleven sixteen. but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to call them their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, this is, this is in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. And what he's done is he's listed all of these people who walked in obedience with the Lord, but never saw the promise fulfilled in their day and age. Why did they go on to their deaths in faith? Because they realized that this wasn't home. They were seeking a better country. They were, and God was preparing for them a, a, an, 
a, a city that could not be destroyed. Watch what the writer of Hebrews does a little bit later. In 1228 of the book of Hebrews, the writer writes, let, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It parallels beautifully Romans 12, 1 and 2, when we realize that we've received the kingdom that cannot be shaken. So, regardless of who's holding what position or what office, it's not outside of the sovereign care of God and at the end of the day is shakable. We've seen that. Presidents and dictators and prime ministers and mayors and governors, they come and they go. But the king of the universe is going nowhere. The kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lastly in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 14. Hebrews 13, 14, for here... He writes, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. They, the writer of Hebrews describes Hebrews as a brief exhortation. Chapter, near the end of chapter 13, the writer says, thank you for being patient with me and enduring this brief homily. So if you think I'm long-winded, go home this afternoon and read Hebrews 13. See how long... <laughs> 13 chapters of Hebrews, see how long it takes you, and then realize that that writer said that was short. It'll make you think, oh, gee, maybe Pastor Mark isn't so bad after all. Sojourners and exiles from Peter, citizens of heaven from Paul, seeking a better country from the writer of Hebrews. The last two Sundays, we've learned as sojourners and exiles that we look at and live in the world differently from those around us. There's, in my lifetime, there has never been a time where that's been more true. Live in the world differently from those around us. That's one of the reasons why the church is being bombarded the way that it is right now because they're looking at the church and seeing us not only not different from the world, but actually leading the charge in some of these areas. That in light of the mercies of God, we offer our bodies, plural, our bodies, our whole persons, not just our minds, not just on Sundays, all, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, singular, very interesting move that Paul makes, that we all individually offer ourselves to God, and collectively that offering, singular, is a beacon of light to the world. So yes, you represent Christ, but we as a collective are a singular offering to the Lord as well, a priestly offering. In your soul for a while. Give contemplation to that, that your offering of yourself is part of something that's much larger than you, and then collectively is a testimony to the watching world. Here in Romans 6:19, Romans 6:19, Paul had talked about our past and how we used to offer our bodies to unrighteousness. We 
We all have parts of our story that we don't want other people knowing. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 19. You, you, were, you were running with the crowd. You were, you were not only running with the crowd, but you, you were exhorting others to run with you. More, more, more. I have those chapters in my life. I'd be ashamed. Thank God I've forgiven for it, but I'd be ashamed if you knew some of those things about me. I'm, that's Romans 6, 19. I used to offer my body, members of my body, for unrighteousness. I pray that none of you are doing that right now. And this is what happens when you're invaded by the Spirit of the living God. You no longer offer your bodies to those things. Your, your body is now offered in other places for other reasons, to other ends. God help us. We learned that from this foundation, and I'm going to wear myself out, from the foundation, in light of the mercies of God, we are not to be conformed to this age, to this world. You know, church, that I wear us out on that. It's horse and cart. Mercies are first, and then you don't conform. It does not work. It does not work in reverse. And some of you, some of you continue to live like that. Some of you think that's the way God orders his world, that if I don't do certain things, then I experience his mercies. That's not how it works. Let's be clear about that. The, the clear thread through Scripture is that grace abounds. And because grace comes to you, then you can fight against conforming to the world. It does not work in reverse. If I do a better job not conforming, God will be approving of me. No, 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 no. In Christ, God already approves of you. Now go fight. You lose the entirety of Christianity. You have self-righteousness, you have do-goodism, you have moralism, you have legalism, all these kinds of isms that destroy the centrality of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. Verse, we continue to look at Romans 12, 2. Last week was the negative, do not conform. To the pattern of this age. This week it's a positive, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I told you last week this is the way we take this, and if the good Lord is willing, next week we'll look at the goal of this, so that you may be able to test and approve God's will, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And we'll talk about the ministry of discernment. How do I know the will of God for my life? Last week, do not be, do not be. We focused on Paul's appeal. He appeals. He's not coming with the hammer. I exhort you. I appeal to you in view of God's mercies. I want you swimming in the deep end of the pool, enjoying the mercies of the Lord. Now, while you're there doing your backstroke, I want to appeal to you. So sweet from this pastor. I appeal to you in light of the mercies of God. And we talked about the mercies, the gospel itself, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the love of God exhibited through the cross of Christ, union with Christ, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These are some of the mercies that we've seen in Romans 1 to 11. And we saw the negative last week, that reflective worship, this is your reflective worship, reflective worship will not conform to this world, to this age. It will not copy it. It won't be squeezed into the mold of this world, as we have said. 
We, we urged, we, I appealed to you to be alert to the subtlety of conformity. And we talked about conformity being a lifelong process, a pattern, a long disobedience in the same direction, if you please. And I, 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 I've said to you, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to conform today to the pattern of this world. Nobody wakes up and just starts doing it. It's a drip, drip, drip. The pipe doesn't burst all of a sudden. The pipe bursts because it's been dripping. And negligent husbands like myself let a year or two years go by and I still haven't dealt with it. And then, boom, it happens. The same is true in our spiritual life as well. You keep just nibbling, you nibble here, and all of a sudden you're making deals with the devil. And it's no longer, in the, it's no longer on the edges anymore. Now you're eating the middle of the pie. Hundreds of small decisions, literally hundreds of small decisions based on what we love or what we fear. That eventually form habits. And it becomes our normal. Oh, that's just normal. And then somebody walks into your life and says, what are you doing? And you get all offended. Because you've been called out for something that's normal for you. I've just been doing this for forever. This is just who I am. You've heard me. The elders have heard me talk about this as well. People, people come in and they behave in scandalous ways. And I, I say, wait a minute. We, you call yourself a Christian. You can't be behaving like that. Well, who do you think you are telling me this kind of thing? I said, well, I've got the word of God in my hands here, and I'm exhorted to be exhorting you about your walk right now, and it's a deep concern of mine. Oh, that's just the way that I am. Well, you snapping because you've got a short fuse is not just the way you are. That's sinful. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you've got the power to overcome biting people's heads off at every turn. That's not just your personality. That's the sinful nature that still needs to be overcome and can be by the mercies of God. Are you feeling me? You understanding what I'm saying here? We all have those battles. No, we're not going to turn the other way if you're living a sinful life. Well, Pastor Mark, they're not going to change. They've been doing that for 40 years. Well, shame on you for allowing them to do it for 40 years. Hundreds of small decisions that eventually lead to habits that become our normal. Remember what Jesus said, and I quoted this to you last week, John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my posse would be up in your face right now waging war. But notice they're not. Why? Because we march to the beat of a different drummer. be transformed. We must be transformed to the ways of Jesus. Better, John, we must be transformed to Jesus. So here's the positive in the last few minutes that I have here. Here's the positive. That's by way of review. The positive is simply, we've been describing, and I, I love this, if I could say so myself, I haven't done this for my whole life, and a couple weeks ago it came to me, and I, it, it just keeps coming up. We've been describing followers of Jesus as instead people. Remember, I've been using that term. I think I've used it for the last three weeks or so. The Christians are instead people. Not this. Instead, we're this. And this is exactly what Paul does right here. Here's another example. This is the positive. 
that reflective worship, offering of our bodies in view of God's mercies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, reflective worship will not conform to the pattern of this age, but will be transformed by the renewal of our minds. You see the but? There's a couple of ways of saying but in the original language. One is just the run of the day but. But then there's one form that is emphatic. Almost like Paul saying, look, it's not this way, but it's this way. And this is what he uses right here. This is the instead. Not conformity to this age. Instead, turn it by the mercies of God. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christians are instead kinds of people. We let God remold our minds from within. Do not be conformed. Be instead transformed. The word for transformation, we get word you learned probably in high school biology, metamorphosis. That's where we get the English word metamorphosis. And if you remember anything about junior high or high school biology or botany or whatever it was you took, you'd think metamorphosis. And the first thing that at least comes into my head is a cocoon. And a cocoon morphs. It metamorphosizes. Bet you didn't wake up this morning thinking you want to hear that word, did you? It metamorphosizes from the cocoon, not particularly pretty, but all of a sudden, over time, a beautiful butterfly emerges. That's the process. That's what Paul's getting at here. I don't know if Paul had butterflies in his mind or not, but it's the same word here, and that's the kind of transformation. I use that illustration so you can see it in your mind's eye. Man, this is really ugly to start, but look what it's becoming. That's what I want you to see, is that this transformation might be really ugly. There might be some work that needs to be done deep in your soul that you don't want anybody seeing or hearing or knowing about. But guess what? Not to get too schmarmy here. God's got beautiful butterflies waiting to fly over this room. I can't believe I just said that. Like the butterfly emerging from the cocoon, so we too are transformed. It's the same word that appears in the transfiguration doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. But when Jesus is transfigured on the mount, Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, he's, he's transformed. There's a transformation that now, that's a unique scenario. Obviously, you and I are not going to be transfigured like Jesus was, but his appearance changed. His face was as, as white and radiant. The, 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 the disciples did not know what to do. It's, it's a beautiful biblical illustration of a change that takes place, a radiance that comes about as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. You, you, you remember I made a big deal out of Romans 8.29. We talked about 8.28. All things work together for good for those who are called and who are loved by God, we, we know, and who love God, we know that. But we know that we love 829 as well, because that tells us those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we're not conformed to the pattern of this age. Instead, we are conformed to the person of Jesus. So the million-dollar question is, are you today any more like Jesus than you were a year ago? Five years ago? Ten years ago. Now, don't get discouraged if you sit there and go, oh, because this is a battle. I'm going to use battle language, fighting language here in just a minute. 
This is what God enables us to do, what God is indeed doing in your life right now. Deep breath with me, deep breath. God is indeed in your life right now, making you more like Jesus. I have no better word for you today. I've got nothing else beyond that, that God is at work making you more like Jesus. And there's nothing that you should treasure more than Christ-likeness. Nothing. You do it by the renovation of your mind. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought it said renewal. Well, it does. But it, it also means renovation. It means renovation. And those of you in the room who have done renovations, those of you in the room who have had renovations done, look, look at everybody. <laughs> yeah, we're in the midst of a re re renovation right now. It's been going on for 17 years, Pastor Mark. being conformed to the pattern of this age. We're not talking a tweak here. We're talking a renovation. A renewal of the mind. Like being conformed, being transformed is also a process. This is where I tell you to take a big deep breath. We're talking about habits now in a positive way. Transformation is not going to happen overnight. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and start walking on water. Breathing room. Spouses, give your, give your spouse some breathing room. Give your children some breathing room. Give me some breathing room. Contrary to popular opinion, I do not walk on water. I love water, and I'll swim all day in it, skate on it when it's frozen, but I don't walk on it. Let's be patient with one another in this process of transformation. The old sin-loving mind must go. This is renovation. When you renovate a house, you don't leave in rotting wood. You don't leave up a termite-infested wall and say, oh, I'll just paint over it. You knock things out. It's painful. so that the new has come. Paul uses his exact same language. When you're in Christ, behold, the old is gone and the new has come. So you have both and here. You are transformed and you are being transformed. You are growing into what you are. The old sin-loving mind must go. The new Christ-loving mind must replace it. that our Lord has taught us that the greatest commandment, what is the greatest commandment? The love. Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your what? Mind. Mind. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. Luke 10, 27, if you want the reference to that. Think of it this way. As food is to the body, so too we must be attentive to what we feed our minds. 
We know what happens to the body if we do nothing but eat junk all day. Start to meddle. There are a lot of Italians in this room, and you know you're preaching on Staten Island. All due respect to those of you out in Streamland. But you know that if you eat bonbons all day, you're not going to be fit for any race. Well, the same is true for the life of the mind. If you're just filling your mind with junk, well, guess what? I spent 10 years in high tech. Many of you know that. And there was a, there's a, 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 an acronym. I use this illustration often. There was an acronym that we used back there. It was called GIGO, G-I-G-O. Garbage in, garbage out. You put garbage into a system, you got garbage out of a system. I, I don't mean to make it sound so harsh, but the same is true of not only our bodies, but also of our minds. If you're filling your minds with garbage, then you're going to get garbage out. Don't think for a second that you can fill your mind with garbage six days a week, come here, and whammo, whammo be good, that your mind is all queued up and ready to go. It's not. We're talking habits here. We're talking disciplines here. And I definitely do not mean to be discouraging by any stretch of the imagination because the banner that continues to fly over my head is by the mercies of God. But the exhortation, the appeal that comes to you today is, is a simple question. What's your next step? What's your next step to break away from that which is destroying you? And what's the next step that in 40 days habit? So as we fight against conformity to this present age by the mercies of God, so too we fight for transformation by the mercies of God. You've heard me say it ad nauseum, that what God requires, he provides. You are not left to do better-ism. You're not left to try harder-ism. You're left to repentance and a throwing of yourself, if you please, on the mercies of God, asking him by the power of the indwelling spirit to begin to transform you from the inside out. Here, here's what we have, as, as encouragement to you, here's what we have in Christ that you might enjoy Christ. We have 1 Corinthians 2.16, 2, we have the mind of Christ now. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have the mind of Christ. Secondly, Titus 3.5, we have renewal by the Holy Spirit. Romans 6.4 tells us, so that we walk in the newness of life. So not only do you have the mind of Christ, but you are also walking renewed in the new life by the Holy Spirit. 
Romans 7, 6 tells us that we've been released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit. These are all truths, realities that are in your life right now. We have the mind of Christ, we walk in the newness of the Holy Spirit, and we serve by way of the Spirit as well. These are present realities in your life right now. In other words, as I just said a little while ago, we grow into what we have, into who we are in Christ. Yes, the clothes you're wearing right now in Christ don't fit you. They're still a little big, but you're growing into them. Don't worry, darling. I know I bought that jacket for you one size too big, but you're still growing like a weed. You're only 11 years old. Well, the same is true of the Christian life. The jacket that you're wearing in Christ is always going to be a little too big. for growing into it. The jacket that says in Christ, watch this now, will never be too small. It'll never be too tight. Don't be discouraged that it'll never fit you perfectly. Put it on, think this is comfortable. I got a little room to grow right here, right now, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. says one writer, of the Spirit and his people is to show that Jesus is more glorious than anyone or anything else. And it cannot be done by those who find this world more enjoyable than Jesus. Those people make the world look great. Therefore, the ultimate aim of the Christian life, indeed of the whole universe, hangs on the people of God enjoying the Son of God. But this is beyond us. to enjoying the world more than Jesus. So here's the point. God Almighty, by His grace and by His Spirit, does not leave us to ourselves when it comes to enjoying Jesus. He helps us. He causes what He commands. This is not optional. It is a duty. But it is also a gift. And the gift comes through means. So this is where I leave you. I leave you with the question, what are your habits? What is the habit of the church? Because churches have corporate habits. What are your viewing habits? What are your listening habits? habits? What are your speaking habits? What are your eating habits? What are your reading habits? Mind on the spirit, not on the flesh. tells us that, that because we are seated with God in the heavenlies, we have to set our mind on the spirit, not the flesh. That we are together to dwell on that which is lovely and good and holy and pure. That's Philippians 4.8. We'll look at that a little bit more next week, God willing. 
that together we might behold the glory of God. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. You see the emphasis on the mind in the Apostle Paul? These, these are habit-forming things. Is your mind set on the spirit, not on the flesh? What is it that you think about when you've got extra time on your hands? Where does your mind go? Together we behold the glory of God. We become what we behold. Please write that down. We become what we behold. In the 135th Psalm, is written, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. Trust in them. That's Psalm 135, beginning in verse 15. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. So ask yourself this question. What am I becoming like? If somebody were to follow me around for a day and listen to what I talked about, listen to what I complained about, listen to what I dedicated my time to, what would they say would be your habits? Behold. I can't state that enough in closing here because I, I think in a sentence it describes an awful lot of the phenomenon that's around us. We have beheld certain things and we've become like that which we have beheld. And it's pretty clear to me that the church is being indicted at this time because the church is giving evidence of not beholding the glory of God. holding things of the world and so we're behaving like the world those things 12 is going to teach us that we need one another in order to do this in order to be transformed by the renewal of our minds we cannot do it alone it takes a village not only to raise a child, but to raise a church as well. That we need one another, and we'll see that in the remainder of Romans 12, in order to realize our goal. Our goal, which is to discern the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We need your help, dear God, and you have promised to give it to us. We have said, if even in a cursory fashion, that we have the mind of Christ. We've been renewed by the Spirit of God so that we are quite capable of walking in the newness of life and serving in the way of the Spirit. God, would you help us? Would you appropriate those things for us? And would you enable us this day to take a very practical step to shape a new habit for some it might be for the very first time, asking Jesus to take over our habits, that we realize that our habits are deadly. Resurrection. I pray for 
everyone that's watching me on live stream or is in this room right now, if they've never done business with you, dear God, and are drifting away, drip at a time, small step at a time, I pray that you would rescue them. And I pray that this day you would make them new, that they might be able to be transformed by the renewing of their minds and start new habits that are pleasing to you and life-giving to them. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.